Welcome to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton. My guest this week is the co-founder of a truly disruptive company. His name is Ollie Thornton Berry. He runs Third Fort. Now, I'll let Ollie describe in detail what it does, but essentially, it automates ID verification for property purchases. Now, I know it's brilliant because I've used it when buying our house. And I think it's a superb example of very clever technology solving very painful problems. Ollie was a great guest. I thoroughly enjoyed chatting to him. And at the end, he has some great advice for budding entrepreneurs. So without further ado, this is the Why Invest podcast. Ollie Thornton Berry, welcome to the podcast. How did you start your career? I uh, started a small business at university with my co-founder, now co-founder, Jack. We sold student discount cards. The problem we were trying to solve at uni was there were lots of bar and restaurant uh, discounts to students, but they were very disparate and there wasn't a single card unifying them. So we had a bit of fun uh, starting that. We signed about 20 uh, bars and restaurants, but I, uh, university, I was already always interested in financial markets and investing. So I applied to a summer internship at, at Barclays Capital, as it was known then, as did my now co-founder, Jack. Spent a summer uh, on the trading floor at, at Barclays in 2012. Jack was in the uh, debt capital markets team. And I just decided pretty quickly I, I liked finance. I liked investing. I liked business. But I didn't like working in a big financial institution. It just, it just didn't suit me uh, as an individual. I much preferred the kind of camaraderie and the, and the teamwork and the nimbleness that you can get in a, in a smaller organization. So I uh, didn't take up a, a job at, at the bank and I joined a, a small capital raising advisory company uh, that was set up by some former uh, credit bankers. We were helping small lending businesses access capital uh, from the shadow banking sector. Did that for about three years. Then I was fascinated by everything that was happening in technology. So I quit uh, that job and, and joined a, a tech investment fund uh, in London called MXC Capital, uh, which is predominantly investing in kind of mid-market private equity deals, uh, mainly enterprise software. Did that for about three or four years and then uh, yeah, took the leap and, and started Third Fort at the back end of 2017. I have to admit, I didn't realize there were 20 bars in Durham, but um, that's impressive that you found them <laughs> and you, uh, you were able to, to do a loyalty card for them. Take me back to that moment first in Durham. What did you bring and what did Jack bring? Sure. So I, I, I quite like the speaking, you know, the, the selling side of, of business. I've always liked that. Um, Jack is the I'm, the, I'm the bigger picture guy. Jack is the kind of realist, the kind of hands-on pragmatist that, that makes stuff happen. So I was going out around Durham, uh, trudging the street, speaking to owners of, of the small businesses and understanding how did they want to get to more students. Jack was doing stuff in the back, like setting up bank accounts, setting up the business. Um, we actually set up a small clothing business on the side, selling selling T-shirts with, with the name of the brand. We called the business Cuckoo Cards, uh, which I'm not sure was the hindsight the best name but uh setting it up and like getting out on the street and and speaking to lots of lots of people selling the proposition which is really interesting and so it sounds like you have an entrepreneurial streak 
What was it like at, at the PE fund? So wind forward, whatever it was, five years at the PE fund, um, which presumably was a, a reasonably safe and stable job. How did you reconcile that safe and stable life versus going out on a limb and starting something completely different? I always had the uh, itch to start my own business. I just didn't know when, I think like all entrepreneurs, you, you just don't quite know when is the best time. For me, I did some exams. I went through uh, the CFA program, which was interesting, educational, helped me learn more about capital and has actually been massively helpful in, in starting a business. But once I completed that program and I was kind of into the, to the flow of, of full-time work, I just felt deep down that there was something missing. There was something that I just couldn't quite uh, reconcile in myself. You know, I was fortunate to be, as you say, in a stable job and, you know, reasonably well paid, which, uh, you know, allowed me to kind of enjoy my, my 20s in, in London. But there was just something, there was a hollow part of me. And when I started kind of thinking about uh, the prospect of, of starting third four, it was you know, not that it was a light bulb idea moment, so to speak, I'm sure we'll come on to that, but it was just this, it sort of hit me quite hard. The the idea of leaving, you know, the fund I was in and, and having complete independence to swing the bat, so to speak, was just so incredibly appealing to me at a stage in my life when I was 26, 27 years old, you know, at the time I didn't have a girlfriend, didn't have a mortgage, I didn't have all these kind of big commitments, but I'd had enough experience in the professional world to know a little bit, or at least enough to to hopefully try and give something a go at getting getting it off the ground. And and that was really the kind of impetus to that feeling that it was it was the right path to take, and it was just a gut feel to at least start looking closer at, at prospective opportunities before I you know knew enough to to want to quit my job and go full-time to third fourth. So, well, let's introduce third fourth. What problem were you, you trying to solve um, when sure. you founded the business? Yeah, the, the problem was is that uh, for any of our listeners who have, who have bought a house in the UK, uh, the problem we're trying to solve is that buying a house is inherently risky with rising rates of fraud for both uh, you, the individual, when you're buying a house but also the, the lawyers, agents, and mortgage brokers. But it's also deeply unsettling and anxious experience for pretty much anyone that goes through it. And there's about a million and a half residential property transactions a year in the UK. The process is still incredibly archaic, uh, very paper-based, very susceptible to fraudsters exploiting uh, vulnerabilities and the disjointed nature of it. So we set out to build a, a new way uh, to facilitate a secure, streamlined transaction in which the individual and the professional would feel uh, more confident going through that, that property transaction rather than the, the kind of deep-seated apprehension that, that you hear from, from so many people that go through it and so many of the professionals on the other side of the table. Well, Ollie Ines, thank you, because we've just moved house and I use the third fault platform to verify our documents with our lawyers, and it is seamless. And what would I have had to do if I wasn't using the third platform? Yeah, and appreciate it, Doug. Look, glad you, uh, you got a chance to use it. 
before I kind of go into, into that specifically, I just want to say one of the challenges in getting any business off the ground, I think, is knowing where to start. We have a pretty clear vision of where we want to get to. And in simple terms, we want to build the app, the one app for after Zoopla. So you find your property on Zoopla, you speak to your estate agent, you're asked to download third floor app. That app remains in your pocket, used by you the whole way through that transaction journey right to moving in. So you use it to find a mortgage that suits you. Uh, you use it to go through all the checks with your lawyer, provide your documentation and securely transfer those funds. Uh, you can sign everything through it. You only need to provide information once. So it's all those kind of arduous, unclear tasks and risky tasks that in a manual world uh, are there to be exploited. You know, we want to put all of that into one app. But what we had to do to begin with is we had to be really focused in our offering. We couldn't do everything at once. So we needed a way into the market. And so what we did is we, uh, uh, two years ago when we launched, we took the uh, Monzo Revolut onboarding, which is where you take a photo of your passport or driver's license. We put that into an app and we just went to law firms and said, look, you don't need to get passports or driver's licenses uh, from your clients. You can just use this app and it'll save your clients physically coming into the branch with their passport, utility bill, et cetera. Um, so it's saving, you know, for, for you, the buyer, it's saving your trip in to see your lawyer. For the lawyer, it saves them having to have 25 minutes of small talk when they're incredibly busy people and they just want to get on with the transaction. So as I say, it, it was launching a completely new way to do the, the basic uh, ID document verification. And we subsequently built on top of that, uh, we leverage uh, open banking uh, for those of people that don't know, open banking allows uh, you, the individual, to share 12 months of bank statements to your phone in about five, six seconds um, securely. So uh, we then uh, built the capability in the app where you can share financial statement information with your lawyer securely, and it saves you having to uh, get hold of paper bank statements and fill out lots of forms, justifying where your money's coming from that you need to buy that property for AML purposes. So we've just made that way, way simpler uh, in the app. So, so it's kind of two components, ID and AML uh, verification is done in about one or two days versus uh, it's usually about two and a half weeks um, is the paper-based version on average. So presumably as you sort of go up that value chain, so you start off just verifying statements and passports, presumably the value proposition increases. Where's the steady state? Where do you want to be? And just to reiterate, you said you want to make everything completely seamless from looking at a property on Zoopla all the way through to purchase. Are we going to see estate agents disrupted? Yeah, I think for us, we are just starting to push into the estate agent market where, again, for our listeners, anyone that's bought a house in the last two or three years, uh, you usually you would have had to provide your, your ID documents, uh, your bank statements, et cetera, four times. That's once with the estate agent, once your mortgage broker, your lender and your lawyer. What we want to do next, and this is what we're building in the second half of this year, is you download the third floor app uh, with your estate agent, you do the ID and the basic checks, and you can just click a button and share the information securely with, with your lawyer or your broker. It will just save so much time. Um, so yeah, we, we, we started very focused on, on property lawyers. The two and a bit years we've been live, we signed up about uh, 560. Uh, we run up around 40,000 of their client checks a month. And we are now just at the point we feel we've, you know, got a really good, strong traction, good presence in the in the property legal market. It's now for us to expand into the uh, state agency market. And we signed up in the past 
three or four months since we, we just started exploring it. We signed up around 30 uh, estate agents and estate agents are now starting to become, you know, regulated uh, more and more intensely. The oversight is becoming more, more burdensome, uh, much like, you know, many of the lawyers have. So, so the need for them to get, you know, tech like third for is definitely there, whereas it wasn't two years ago. So we're lining up for a, for a kind of big expansion uh, into the estate agent, mortgage broker and lender market in the, in the second half of this year. It's incredibly exciting and you can see the total addressable market would be huge. What I suppose I don't really understand is what the competitive landscape looks like. Who are you up against? Or are you, is this a sort of new category? Are you, is this a sort of category killing type business? Yeah, look, there's, of course, uh, there are, there are lots of competitors out there. Um, I think the, in simple terms, there are competitors that are selling uh, bits of the technology that we do to many industries. So, uh, and the reason I think there are, there are many more competitors in there than there otherwise would have been COVID obviously very quickly uh, restricted all face to face, which meant uh, the traditional ways of, of client onboarding for lawyers, et cetera, was you go in physically with these documents. When that, the shutter came down on that March of last year, the shift to this technology was incredibly rapid. And so we saw, you know, a lot of people um, basically come into the space uh, pretty fast and otherwise they would have done. And they came in, there's a lot of people, as I say, doing the, the digital ID verification, you know, that journey that you do on Monzo or Revolut right at the beginning. There's a lot of people now offering that technology. Um, what we see as a differentiator is you know, we've built the open banking capability uh, off the back of it. We've got some very clever uh, mobile app developers and data analytics people in-house that, that have built incredibly clever layer of technology uh, for the kind of deeper AML checks, which are very tailored to the, to the property transaction rather than, you know, one little bit of, of tech that's applied to you know, the gaming industry, the recruitment industry, you know, other regulated space where there are similarities, but, you know, it's not as, nothing's as regulated in this country as highly as property transactions because there's so much money moving hands at such high velocity uh, that the regulators are, are really kind of clamping down on, on all of it, which leads to a much worse and more risky experience for everybody. So where do you see the value of your business? Is it in a superior technological offering or is it in scale and, and network effect? As more and more people get on this platform, it sort of becomes the go-to platform for, for lawyers and estate agents. I think a bit of both. Ultimately, our aspiration is to become a platform business here where there are network benefit uh, effects. So, the more when we start signing up estate agents and mortgage brokers, the more uh, of those agents that come on board, the more it benefits everyone in the ecosystem because that house buyer can use third vault with their agent. They can then, that house buyer can just choose to share their information with the broker and the lawyer if that broker and the lawyer are on the third vault platform. So it becomes better and faster for everyone. Uh, that agent gets to move through that transaction, the completion much faster uh, to completion for the lawyer, it's instant onboarding. It's not two and a half weeks. Uh, same thing for the broker. So there is a platform play here with huge network potential. But in order to get there, it's sort of like getting this flywheel going. We're definitely not at that stage where you see the, you know, that exponential growth curve. We we kind of need to get some other things in place. But I think before we can hit that that mega growth, but we do see ourselves as having differentiated technology in this space absolutely and um, of course i'd be biased but you look at something like the conveyancing industry where 
you know, it's been a huge amount of change uh, in the last year, but we started in this market about two and a half years ago uh, where I spent, you know, the best part of, of the first six months just traveling up and down the country, speaking to, to conveyances, understanding their the conveyances, the, the property lawyers, understanding their, their challenges around compliance, risk, how they onboard clients. So we've focused on building a brand that sits on top of this differentiated technology. I think if you speak to any of our clients, the law firms, they would say, and you ask them what differentiates third fort, they would say third fort do the open banking source of funds checks. You know, a lot of other people do the ID verification, maybe document upload, but third fort do the source of funds checks, which as I say, are, are open banking. We have an FCA license for that. So I think the product is differentiated today, but longer term, you know, I we're really gonna run hard at, at becoming that platform business with huge network uh, benefits. Well, we'll talk about the growth opportunity in a sec, but taking a step back and when you and Jack were sort of thinking about the idea, number one, what were your sort of non-negotiables in terms of, you know, what you wanted from the business? Um, and then secondly, what brands did you look at and not necessarily in your industry want to sort of look up to and emulate? So non-negotiables, I mean, it's hard because when you start a business for the first time, I mean, <laughs> there is... It would be up for negotiation. Everything is up for negotiation because you sort of are making it up not by the day but by the minute. So I think just basic um, things there that you see certain founders get really right and wrong. It's finding you know that co-pilot. If you, if you want to start a business by yourself, absolutely. You see lots of people being very successful there. I, I think it's it's considerably harder. And because if you if you find that right one or two co-founders with you to to share that journey and who complement you and who you have an incredibly uh, strong relationship with and could be fully open and trust you know more than you trust anybody that creates like a well it's a really helpful sounding board for you in the early days it helps you see you know blind spots that you have in in various various places so I think the one thing I'd say to you know any aspiring founders that are listening is and if you can find that, you know, take your time. But if you can find that co-founder or even two co-founders that really bring something complementary, and that point, you know, can't be understated is they have to bring something that, that isn't similar to what, what you can already do. Then I think if you bring those together and, you know, and, and you have the humility, you don't have you know, too much ego in it, and you have clear, as I say, defined roles, uh, then that can really you know, help improve your, your chance of success and, and getting something off the ground. In terms of brands, uh, and businesses that we aspire to, you know, there's been a load of just mega successes in the London ecosystem. I think in the early days, back in 2017, you know, we just looked at, at Revolut and Monzo uh, as two businesses that just came out of nowhere. Both me and Jack, actually, with another couple of university friends, were on holiday and using Monzo uh, cards for the first time, and just like the experience was just so unlike anything we'd had from from any banking apps, which were, I mean, still are pretty clunky, but they were, they were even worse back then. And it was just so eye-opening to see, you know, the disruptive potential, even though those businesses were only focusing on, on foreign exchange, they were allowing you to get cheap FX versus going to a TravelX or a bank um, through, through your phone, through a super slick uh, interface. And they obviously then used that as, you know, similar to us and our kind of ID, use that as a, a kind of springboard to go into other stuff. They were using foreign exchange to go into all the other stuff. So Monzo and Revolut, two brands that, you know, businesses I have huge ad admiration for and have ridden incredible waves. And then you look at other companies like TransferWise, you know, what they've done. I know they're listing later this year. 
they've just those those guys have built an incredible business, uh, wildly profitable, uh, very mission driven, um, strong strong culture, um, incredible growth, yeah, and expanding. You know, again beyond just their initial focus, still super ambitious and hungry. So you know, I, I like the look of that. And then just finally, there's a business called Go Cardless, a fintech. Uh, that we've we've actually hired a couple of a couple of team members, a couple of leads in in our business, and they've built you know an incredible product and offering in the recurring payment space for for small businesses, which sounds very unsexy and simple, but you know they've just built you know an incredibly useful product that we use here. Uh, but they've grown; they, I think they've just surpassed a, a billion valuation, uh, having launched seven or eight years ago. And and again, you know, strong culture, strong values, strong mission. Um, so yeah, those kind of businesses, uh, yeah, I, I really look up to. I wonder, Ollie, is there a is there a land grab element to your business? And let's go back to sort of your growth trajectory, which you know it, it could sort of go parabolic. And at that stage, um, how do you ensure that you're getting growth and returns, not just sort of growth for for growth's sake? Yeah, it's a great question, and it's something I think many tech founders grapple with. Is it growth at all costs, or are you? focusing on you know trying to build a business with sustainable operating cash flow and it's hard because the funding ecosystem where it's at today which is incredibly buoyant for for high growth tech scale-ups is definitely incentivizing the former you know it's it's growth at all costs you know nobody is really uh, looking at the net uh, unit economics it's all you know people are looking at uh, that top line and at the gross level, at the gross margin level, and and how you know those uh, metrics, how are they changing over time uh, to be more advantageous? The cost below uh, the gross level, you know, that you're seeing salaries in in technology businesses, you know, salaries going going up and up and up uh, across the board. You know, not just at the engineering and product level, but you know, sales partnerships. You know, you're, you're seeing some kind of some out there, you know, when you speak to recruiters and other people, you're, you're seeing massive increases uh, in kind of pay expectations across the board. So you've got big funds and, you know, you'll, you'll know as well as anyone, you know, big funds that, that have been raised. There's lots of capital sat looking for a home uh, with rock bottom interest rates. You know, that pool of capital has only got larger and larger uh, over the last 10 years. And so the, the premium on, you know, high growth businesses whose unit economics, as I say, at the, at the kind of gross margin contribution level are moving in the right direction, is getting higher and higher. So I think it, it depends on your horizon. And you know, Amazon's the extreme case of where when Bezos was scaling that up you know, and public markets to a certain extent, and he had a lot of detractors saying, you know, Amazon will never make money. Uh, you know, Amazon is you know, just way overvalued. You know, people said it was way overvalued right from the IPO. And he, you know, stayed, took a long-term view, stayed patient, had a clear vision. And he could see that the unit economics, you know, at, at the gross margin level, if he could just get that right and own the space, become the everything store, the profitability would, and the free cash would just take care of itself. But if he had been more conservative earlier on, you know, would he have built, you know, a business quite at that scale? Now, obviously, that's the extreme example that everyone knows and everyone looks to. I think there are other examples out there today and obviously a much smaller scale of where you're seeing businesses that the blitz scale where you just go as hard and as fast as you can because the barriers for new entrants are so much lower than they were five years ago that when people clock on to what you're doing and you've got capable people that can raise a lot of capital very quickly, you just have to move fast and execute. Mm-hmm. 
And so I think it's, it's one of those things where I'm trying not to give you a, a sitting on the fence um, answer. Look, we are, as a business right now, we are prioritizing growth. Absolutely. However, you know, we want to keep a handle on, you know, what's happening at the net level and how far off profitability we are. Mm-hmm. And we actually think that, you know, this month we're going to be not far off break even. Um, next month, even closer. We then got to stack new hires coming in. So we're probably going to push further into the red for a few months. But we need these hires to go as fast as we want. Um, at the moment, this is the right time for us to be pressing that pedal to the metal. And so for us, you know, it's all about growth. But I would love to get to the point we are sustainable from a cash flow perspective. You know, we're not having to constantly, we're not having to go through the alphabet of fundraisers, the, you know, B to F. Mm-hmm. Um, and get as founders diluted down to low single digits. We definitely want to, you know, keep a handle on it. But for the moment, you know, we're, we're growing as fast as we can. So let's talk about funding. Yeah. What have your sources of funding been? And second question: How do you balance that process of shaking the can and you know looking for investment while at the same time running the day to day operations of the business? Look, in simple terms, I think if you build, if you focus on building a good business, the funding will take care of itself. Build a good business and funding becomes so much easier. I mean, it's such an obvious point. I think, again, you see a lot of founders take obviously different types of approaches to this. You know, you'll see many founders that will say, okay, my funding window's open. I'm going to, you know, do my first, raise my first 300,000, 400,000, whatever it is. I'm opening it now. Here's my pitch deck. Send it to anyone that's interested. And it's kind of open in perpetuity. We didn't take that approach. So right from, uh, and we've done now uh, four rounds of, of, of angel investment. Uh, we raised 4.2 million, including uh, some grants, uh, about 300,000 in, in grants from the government as well. But that's all angels and, and one, uh, sorry, two corporates that, that have invested. And, and what we did is our approach was, Try and get traction with the business. So you've got a, a good story to tell. Obviously, put together a pitch deck, but you're, you're constantly speaking to what well, you sort of through the journey. You know, you're speaking to people that have scaled up businesses before that have relevant experience and those that are interested and want to kind of impart, you know, advice, wisdom. Those are ones that you really kind of latch onto at the early stage. You build those relationships and you, and you ask some questions. You know, how do you hire a marketing person? You know, how do you scale your sales team? You know, all these kind of things that that come up and people that um, are willing to, to help out because they've done this before, you know, often, you know, have the financial resource to, to invest in you. When they say they want to, you know, when you're next doing a round, you'll just say, okay, fine, I'll let you know. And um, you then get what the, the approach that we took is we would always get like one or two kind of lead orders. People that are saying, look, if you do a round, I would commit X. And then we use those to as anchors to basically go to the other people that we've been been talking to and run very very uh, compressed and focused timelines. So you know, effectively open the book that was already half filled, and then you know give people ten days to tell you whether whether they're in or out, and then you just shut the book. You say I'm done. I'm taking all of these. And as you get closer to ten days, you know if things go well, you kind of get closer and closer to your target. Sometimes you get slightly over. And you'll email the, the remaining people that have been slow coming back to you and say, look, thank you very much. Just want to let you know, we're almost at our target. We've got X left. We're closing it. Just let me know if you're interested. And that just helps that time pressure, that sort of FOMO. You know, there is in the early days where you've got no traditional metrics. You're not based on that even of a multiple of, of revenue or anything. It's much more an art than a science. You know, you kind of got to just create that, spin that, 
that dynamic up. But I think you can do that. The two key ingredients, build a good business that is getting traction. And if you can get one or two good people interested in what you're doing and, you know, put it willing to put their name to it, then, then that helps a lot as well. I mean, there's another element to that and, and sort of establishing a value for your business. Another element, um, you know, the cost of capital and interest rates where they are lower, indeed negative. You know, the cost of capital has been sort of completely decimated. How does one, you know, put a finger in the air and say, hey, look, this is what my business is worth? How did you navigate that? It's a great question and quite literally is doing what you just described. At the beginning, when you've got a blank sheet of paper, you've got two blokes and an idea, you know, how on earth do you value for that first 200,000 check? And it's, it's really, really hard. And what you're seeing in the tech space at the moment is, you know, most people are, are kind of looking to this sort of, there's a range between basically one and a half million and three million for an opening valuation, um, assuming you've got two founders who are credible and a good idea. And that delta, the one and a half to three, is purely based on size of opportunity, any initial traction, capability of the team. Are these three founders straight out of university and have you know zero business experience? Or are they three founders who are, you know, they've quit well-paid jobs in banks, law firms, asset managers, et cetera, and they can see there's an opportunity here because they're putting their own human capital behind it. And so I think all of those things go into you know, where people are sort of that art, you know, feeling it out. And then you've just got to find a one or two angel investors who are willing to, to take that very early stage punt that the government, you know, tax incentives around a seed enterprise investment scheme, the SEIS, uh, where you actually get 50% of your initial capital of your taxable income, which is incredibly generous. I think one of the leading schemes in, in the Western world. And then the enterprise uh, investment scheme, uh, where you get around 30% back. The SEIS, you can raise 250000 right at the beginning on you know, very good terms. Uh, sorry, it's a very good deal for the, for the investor because they get half of what they invest back. So if they invest 50000 they get 25000 back. So you know, there's all those good things, which will obviously help push up valuation. But you know, from an investor's perspective, you, can't, you don't want to, in a, in a perverse quite a way, for a, if you're sat on the investor table and you, you kind of haven't been in the founder seat, you might think, oh, this is the riskiest thing I'll ever do. You know, I can't value this. I want 30% of the business for £100,000. That seems sensible. The, the challenge with that approach is you're, there will be later fundraisers coming. Those founders will get diluted in the future. So you need to keep those founders really incentivized because they're not really going to get paid a salary for at least two years. And if they do, it'll be negligible salary. So you need to keep, you know, the ability, the, the, the kind of upside there for those founders to do future rounds without, you know, taking 40 or 50% of the business, whatever it is on day one. So it's a hard balance to get right. But um, yeah, I think it's, it's sort of becoming as more and more businesses are getting set up. It's platforms like Seed Legals that, that kind of help you through um, all of that stuff. And it is becoming more, like these term sheets are becoming a bit more commoditized. Whereas when we started, it was, it was total finger in the air. And so once you received your funding, you know, you had some pretty big capital allocations decisions to make. You know, how did you start? How did you prioritize what needed to be done to get you to that area of growth, that parabolic area of growth that you want to be in? Is that about investing in technology or is it about investing in a great sales team or talk me through that process? Yeah, so exactly. In simple terms, there's two things to invest in there is, you know, product tech, one side sales, marketing, and everything that goes with that on, on the other side. So, yeah, you have to, I mean, depends. Do you want to 
you know, are you building a, uh, you know, a sales led business where you just build a, a product initially with an outsourced development team, and then it's all just about distribution? Or do you want to build uh, the capability to kind of constantly innovate and constantly cycle cash in uh, to build better technology? And we took the view right from the outset you're effectively going to invest in those two uh, pretty equally. And so, you know, we're a team now of 70 and it's roughly, roughly split down the middle, 35 software engineers and products, and then 35 client success, account management, uh, partnerships, sales, marketing, and the support wrapper that, that goes with all of that. So as I say, we are roughly split down the middle. I think you know, as we scale from 70 to 200, uh, our expectation is that, you know, that split of 50-50 with tech and product on one side, the rest of the business on the other side. We expect that to stay, you know, fairly consistent going forward. Where does management come into it? As you go from 70, the difference between running a business of, of 70 people to 200 people is huge, presumably, from a management perspective and making sure that people's interests are aligned and making sure that people are sort of incentivized in the right way. How do you think about management? And, you know, is it perhaps not such a priority definitely it's a priority and for us it's been a steep learning curve so in february last year we're a team of 12 so we've gone just over a year from 12 to 70 and most of those hires were made obviously during remote we're actually spread across london uh, manchester and we've got a development team at sri lanka the interesting thing is when you're hiring remote and everybody's remote it's actually easier when everyone's remote because everyone's on the same level playing field Whereas the, the challenge we've got now and we're kind of trying to tackle is that you've got some people in offices, some people staying at home, you know, some people obviously just doing flexible. And so for us, you know, we, we are very, as I say, we're values driven as a business. You know, we're investing heavily in our, our kind of people team. We've got a head of people. She's joined by two new colleagues on her team, which will grow as well. So, so we, we really want to you know, bring in great leaders into the business make sure when they're here, they're being looked after and they feel valued. And, you know, they feel like there's an alignment between the executive team, which is myself, Jack, and our, our CTO, Udi, right down to the most junior team. Um, and everyone knows, you know, we've got six core values. Everyone knows what they are. Everyone, we kind of reference them frequently. And everyone feels like the company's got their back. We set kind of career progression uh, plans, development plans with feedback uh, loops going on and yeah and look we've got as i say we've been fortunate to hire some great people who have managed and scaled teams before i certainly learned lots from leaders in our business i've never really managed people before starting third four and you know now i've got six direct reports and each of those reports have their own teams under them and i think you know when you sort of get to six or seven reports then you need to to think about that's quite a lot to, to one person now we're fortunate we've, we've kind of got a lot our leads in place so we've um yeah how do you become better as a manager and a leader um is something that you know i and we in the business constantly think about and you know we've got various mentors we've got an advisory board one one of the guys on that james meekings he was a co-founder of funding circle uh he scaled you know to over kind of 600 person business uh billion valuation of the ipo and yeah so he's been on that journey you know that just super high growth and, you know, sort of offers amazing advice around some of the challenges that you've seen before, but equally, you know, there's other people I lean on. Um, but again, it comes back to having, you know, a really strong uh, co-founder who sat there alongside you for, for when you do have those, those challenging days, which of course everyone does. Let's look to the future, Ollie. Where would you like to see the business, let's say in five years time? 
if we look uh, kind of longer term, what do, what do we want to become? I want in the property world in this country, you know, Zoopla's, the founder of Zoopla's a, a big backer of ours, Alex Chesterman, and he's built an amazing business there. I would like, you know, he changed how you find uh, your property. I would like to do the same for transacting property. So I'd like in five years time for it to be effectively Zoopla and third floor. You know, that is it. The transactional side is all taken care of by us. You use the app. Everybody knows the app. Different professionals plug into our app. And we are that kind of trusted, uh, secure platform uh, for going through one of life's biggest moments. And that's where that we see this going. And so such a big opportunity just here in the UK. You know, longer term, we think there is international opportunities. But, you know, we're very focused on, on the home market and, and the size of the opportunity at the moment. And then final question, Ollie, and this is something I ask most guests who come on this podcast. What advice would you give to budding entrepreneurs who are maybe either at university, like Jack and yourself, plodding up and down Durham High Street, or indeed, you know, those analysts and associates who are in a stable job, you know, looking to kick out and maybe do something entrepreneurial? What advice would you give to them? I would say if you've got that itch, that entrepreneurial itch, you should, it's one of those things that I took the view that if I was, you know, sat on my deathbed thinking back to my life and what I didn't want to have is regrets of what might have been. So I'd say to those budding entrepreneurs, it's an amazing time to start a business right now. You know, I'm a non-technical founder. My co-founder is a non-technical co-founder. You know, we've built a software company. Many other people are doing this now. I think even 10 years ago, you had to know how to write software yourself you now don't you know we're just at this amazing junction in where technology is like the technology revolution i think is only just picking up pace we are right on the edge of it i think in 30 years people will look back to today uh, like the you know late 1980s early 1990s in in financial markets where we had the big bang in in london and there was just an explosion in you know, funds and, and opportunities, and it was go-go time. Like for me, this is this, this is similar to technology. You know, people look back. People don't see the size of the opportunities. There are whole industries getting disrupted so fast. You know, so many businesses with with legacy tech um, that it's just you know there's so much to go at. So I'd say the first point is if you've got that itch, I would definitely think seriously about you know having a go. It might not work out. Uh, but at least you, you'll know that you've tried it. And, and I know many people that try it and they think, actually, this isn't for me. Uh, but at least you, you've been through that experience and you've learned. And then the second thing uh, I would say to, to entrepreneurs is, is really think through the timing of the transition from a full-time stable job to you know startup where minimum expectation is it's a year without salary, probably more realistically, a year without salary and then a year of very low salary. So you've got to really think through, you know, financially uh, before you make that jump make sure you've done as much research as you can uh, into the opportunity and that you have high conviction that you know this is worth pursuing and and from first-hand experience when I decided for me I wanted to start my own business I wanted to quit my job immediately Uh, my co-founder Jack persuaded me that you know we should do our homework and properly understand the marketplace, the opportunity, what we're going to build, how we're going to position ourselves. That took the best part of five or six months. And I was really grateful uh, for him to, to kind of coach me through that. So as I say, really make sure that you, um, you do your homework first, understand what problem are you trying to solve? How can you build a solution? You know, why isn't the market working? Uh, you've done all that. And then you know, if you work at something like a small fund or advisory firm, see if you can go part-time. I did that. 
I did two days a week in my startup to transition. Do I know that's not available to everyone? You get a flavor of what it's like. I mean, then kind of transition out rather than just diving headfirst in, uh, finding that maybe it's not going to work and then regretting that you've handed in your notice. So as I say, be smart on that. But just to finish, there's, there's loads of opportunities out there. And yeah, happy to talk to kind of any budding entrepreneurs. Ollie Zorderson, Barry, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Doug. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the Why Invest podcast with me, Doug Barnett, Portfolio Manager at Waverton, and our guest this week, Ollie Thornton-Berry. If you've enjoyed this episode, or indeed the series, why not like it and subscribe to it, and maybe tell your friends and your colleagues. The information provided during this podcast does not constitute investment advice and should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security.